Sergeant and Mrs. Smith, you are going to love this house. Is that a tub in the kitchen? There's no field manual for finding the right home. But when you do, USAA Homeowners Insurance can help protect it the right way. Restrictions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, folks. Spring is here, and with the coming of spring comes a variety of new opportunities. Speaking of which, if you haven't heard episodes from the rest of the Chilling Tales lineup, why not start today? Don't miss the latest episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, airing on Mondays. And, of course, don't forget Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSurley, and Drew Blood's Dark Tales. You can find them all at simplyscarypodcast.com, on YouTube, or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Join us for a while, won't you? <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre. And I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 22. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Kyle Harrison. Tonight we'll hear stories of mind-bending mazes, malevolent missions, confusing call centers, and marine mutations. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support, and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the tear, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. 
<laughs> you wake up in a small room. Don't know how you got there, but there's a hallway that stretches out into forever. If this was an old text adventure, you'd just be able to go north or south enough until you came to the west side of a white house with a mailbox next to it. For the teller of our first weird tale of the evening, such is a thing that's not to be. Now, what he's about to find is much stranger and much more frightening than anything he's ever encountered before. Without further ado, I present to you the Icarus Equation. The following recordings are part of the Daedalus operation a top-secret experiment taking place in Redacted, authorized by Redacted. Only authorized members may listen to these files. I wake up in an empty room. My head's pounding. My heart feels like it dropped into my stomach. My eyes take a few moments to adjust to the strange lighting. As I look around, nothing really making sense to me. The room's ordinary, a drab and colorless place that has no markings on any of the walls and four hallways that branch off to directions that look just as bland. There's nothing to indicate where I am or how long I've been there, except maybe the tiredness of my body. I take a moment to examine myself and notice a few wounds, one of which resembles a Roman numeral 14 to be exact. How I got the tattoo, or why there's an ankle monitor on my right leg now, escapes my memory. I sit up and try to recall the circumstances that brought me here, but nothing is coming back to me. The past is a blur except for pain. I can recall faint voices, but then I second-guess myself. Are those my voice, just mixed with the strange acoustics of this place? I finally decide to stand and pop my back, noticing that my clothes resemble a prison uniform, minus any designation to explain where I'm at. Is this some kind of penitentiary? I decide my best option would be to explore and learn as much as I can and maybe find someone else that could help explain things. Unfortunately, there's nothing to indicate which way I should go. So I mentally toss a coin and choose the path on my immediate right. The hallway feels endless and eerie. Occasionally the box lights flicker, and the corridor seems to flicker in the distance as I keep walking. Eventually, I wind up in another room mirroring the first. In fact, I wonder if it might be the same room or not. The carpet, ceiling, and everything else look no different. I try the path to my left this time, arriving at another empty room about twenty minutes later. I sit down to rest and look around, trying to figure out if I'm just walking in circles. There are no tools I can use to attempt to map a path, unfortunately, but I decide to try something unique. I take off my left shoe, placing it near the right hallway exit. I mentally count as I begin to walk away, keeping my hand on the wall, until I reach the next wide-open zone. There's no shoe to be seen, 
and for a brief moment I feel a flicker of hope, realizing that maybe I can continue to go in the same direction and find a way out. I start toward the corridor directly opposite of me, a renewed spirit in my bones as I think of escaping the maze. But soon an hour has passed, and then another, going on this straight linear path, and I'm seemingly no closer to getting out. I take another break and rub my sore bare foot, wishing I hadn't even considered walking on this rough texture for so long. Since I'm about midway through a corridor, I turn back around deciding to make camp in the previous open area. As I come back to the zone, I feel my heart skip a beat when I see something on the ground. It's the same shoe that I discovered hours ago. Yet here, after traveling so long in one direction, it has returned. Is this maze some kind of spatial distortion? The more I've been trapped here, the more I recognize that it's not a normal prison. Something beyond my comprehension brought me here. I think as I rest against one of the concrete pillars. It's so quiet. The stillness across the corridors makes me feel on edge despite the fact that I haven't seen anything else since my arrival here. I close my eyes and try to ignore the deafening silence as I listen to my own heartbeat. I have to remain sane and hope that a solution will present itself. Just as I'm about to fall asleep, something unexpected happens. A noise, like rain falling from heaven, comes from above the bland lighting. I jerk my head up, trying to figure out what it might be. Then a small black opening slides apart from one of the tiles, revealing an empty tunnel above my head. It looks like a drop chute. I stare up at it for a moment, wondering for the briefest of moments if there would be any way that I could climb up and follow it to the surface. If there is even a surface. There's no source of light, no indication that I can even grip onto the sides. Not to mention I've got nothing to use to make it the tunnel that is approximately ten feet above my head. Then I hear a strange noise from somewhere above, like the rushing of wind. I see something amid the shadows and I panic. It's a person. Before I have time to react, the newcomer falls directly on top of me and knocks the wind out of my lungs. I close my eyes in pain, their body weight making my entire lower half ache as I try to find a way to push them off. Then I get a good look at the stranger that has been unceremoniously dropped in here with me. The newcomer is a woman, probably a little younger than me, and wearing the same drab jumpsuit with a monitor on her wrist. She was unconscious, but clearly stable, and I notice she has a marking on her wrist, much like mine. It's one numeral higher, Fifteen. I have no idea what any of this means, but it did at least confirm that someone, or perhaps something, has trapped us in here. If we survive long enough, perhaps we can find out why, I think, as I sit alongside the stranger and wait for her to wake up. When her eyes do flutter open, I'm reminded of my first few moments here. Confusion and worry are covering her face. And then she sees me and begins to push herself away, frantically looking around the empty room. What do you want from me? 
What is this place? She asks. I think she's searching for something to defend herself with. But the prison offers nothing, and I only raise my hands defensively to show that I mean no harm. I'm, I'm stuck here, just like you. I say, gesturing to my ankle monitor and showing my tattoo. That makes her examine her own clothes and realize I'm telling the truth. Where are we, then? How long have you been here? She asks, looking around the empty corridors. Wish I knew the answer to the first question. Truth is, I've been wandering around for at least six hours now, and I thought I'd be here alone forever. It's some kind of simulation, I think. Perhaps virtual reality? I can't fully explain why I think that, to be honest, but none of this feels real, I tell her. She stands up, rubbing her aching muscles and then extending a hand to me. Sorry for such a rough start, then. I'm Lucia. Seems we're stuck in this mess together. Dexter, but my friends call me Dex. I say, glad that I wasn't so alone with my thoughts. All right, then, Dex. So you said you've been here six hours? This place is some kind of maze or something. She asks, looking toward the nearest corridor. The hallways stretch toward more areas like this that are equally bland. Nothing of interest as far as the eye can see. The only thing to even make me reconsider the possibility of simulation was when I saw you drop from the ceiling. She looks toward the roof, squinting at the lights before commenting. So I was dropped in like a rat in a real lab maze, eh? How funny. Do you remember anything before this? I ask. Before she can respond, both of us are startled by a sharp noise from our left. It sounds like a mixture between a vacuum cleaner and a bulldozer, and it's loud enough to make me temporarily cover my ears. Has that ever happened before? She asks once the sound stops. No. Maybe we should investigate, I suggest. Together, we start down the corridor. I keep my distance from her, both to give her a sense of security and because, despite all the similarities to my own arrival here, I'm not sure I could trust her. Call me paranoid, but this place feels like it could throw any tricks at you. So I make sure she's in front. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At the next empty area, we hear another noise. This time to our left. Lucia looks at me to see if we're going to follow. I don't really see any other option at this point, so we do. As we walk, Lucia tells me a little bit about herself. I was raised by my grandparents in Croatia. They used to keep me every summer and let me go swim right on the beach. Then, when my father and mother died in a horrible accident, they adopted me. I was fortunate to have them as my guardians until I was of legal age. But if you wonder if I could be some sort of criminal to deserve this punishment, the answer is no. What about you, Dex? Kill anyone to be sent to hell? I'm surprised by your candidness and hate to admit that my life is not so cheery and pleasant. I was in the military, second generation. I wanted to make a name for myself and get rid of my family legacy. They weren't exactly stellar examples of society, I tell her. So then that might be the reason you're here, sins of the family, she guesses. Before I can respond, the sounds, the noises, crop up again like it's almost on top of us. Both of us see something coming down the corridor. First, it looks like a wall of black slime, radiating and grabbing at the sides of the hall to pull itself toward us. As it gets closer, I realize that it's actually made of dark stone, with hundreds, if not thousands, of skulls and body parts forged into its amalgamation, and it's slowly working its way toward us. That's new. I say, my throat feeling dry as I take a step back. Lucha doesn't need to be prompted. We run back to the nearest open area and stay there, trying to figure out if the strange demon wall is following us. All we hear is the noise, and sometimes strange wails, like the souls of the dead trapped within it, were trying to call to us. I don't think we can stay here much longer. I say when the noise becomes loud again. I'm sure the creature will appear in the room where we're hiding. Lucia nods before pointing toward the west corridor. We run down it, listening for any signs of the demonic beast, as we reach what looks like a metallic grating. When we get up to it, I bend down and say, This might be an air vent. It might be our ticket out of here. Or it could be another trap. I don't trust it, she argues. This is the first chance at freedom I've seen all day. We have to give it a shot. I insist, as I try to find a way to pry it open. But without the proper tools, I could tell it wasn't going to work. Do you think maybe the monster might be able to destroy this thing? If we lured it here, I ask. It would be risky. could wind up killing us. Lucha says. Would you rather keep wandering this wasteland, I ask. Lucha doesn't have an answer for that as I sit down near the air vent, determining to give the plan a shot. It's been almost ten hours. I need food, water, and damn do I need to pee. If I can confront that thing and use it to get out of here, then damn it, I'm going to try it, I say. 
Lucius sighs in frustration and sits down alongside me. I'll give it a few hours. Do you really think that thing will show up? She asks. Seems to be hunting us, I argue. She doesn't have any other words for the moment. Silence soon envelops the hallway. After about an hour, I decide to try small talk and speculate. This may not be the work of our government. I'm British, so not sure what you mean. Lucha says as she stretches and lays down on the rough carpet. I mean, like, humans. Everything we've seen, it's so advanced. It can't possibly be from Earth, right? What difference does it make? I need answers, don't you? Do you want to know if there's even a way out of this hole? She opens her mouth to respond. The screams of the creature answer me instead. Somehow, it's almost on top of us. I scramble up and Lucha stands behind me, muttering, What exactly is the plan here? The sound of the wall grating against the side of the corridor makes my ears hurt. But I'm not focused on that. Instead, I want to see what happens as the massive, angled arms of the monster rip into the wall. It's tearing into the fabric, destroying it completely. If we can get that thing to slam its claws down here on the vent, we stand a chance of getting it to snatch up, I tell her. The thing is so close I can feel its breathing, and I'm certain the wall of flesh had a heartbeat. Lucia hesitates for a moment and then begins to run. Where are you going? I shout, but she's long gone. I curse silently to myself as I feel the edge of the wall hit by foot. I look toward the drooling amalgamation of skin and bone. It could smash me in a single blow. I stand right against the vent and wait for its claws to slam down before moving out of the way. But I'm not fast enough. The creature slashes against my back and I fall down in pain, feeling the wound open up to the air. Not to blow like that and I'll be dead. And the wall is about to cover me completely. Then I hear shouting. Lucia. Hey, you big lug! Over here! She shouts. I can see she's waving something to attract the monster's attention. And as it turns, the vent pries open, and I hear the gasp of fresh air below. You have to hurry! I shout, as I see the vent is trying to close shut again. Go! Find a way out of here and come back for me! She yells back as she runs down the corridor. The monster crawls its hefty body toward her, just barely giving me room to squeeze by toward the open vent. The hole below my feet is pitch black, but the time for second-guessing myself is over. I jump down into the abyss. I can feel the rush of air hit me as I slide down the narrow hole. I try to hold back the urge to yell and wonder how far down I'll go before I hit anything. The sensation of freefall is so jarring. After a long moment, even the memory of up or down seemed impossible to comprehend. There's nothing as far as the eye can see, and yet I still fall. Have I escaped the simulator, and am I now just a glitch in this strange matrix? I close my eyes and try to listen for any sign of a solution to this predicament. I can hear faint whispers. It sounds like something from an endless database. Numbers. It's numbers being whispered into the abyss. 
They're being read off so fast I can't comprehend what they mean. And then, before I can even try to memorize any of them, I see a bright light below my feet. A rush of sensation overpowers my body just as I slip through the floor. Right before I hit the carpet, I see an older woman with gray braids and dark skin. Then I black out as my body crumples against the ground. When I wake up, I'm in a small room with no lights. I look out the doorway and see the same familiar drab area, except this time the walls are covered in writings. The same numbers I'd heard whispered in the endless fall. They're everywhere. What do they mean? I walk out to get a better look and see that the woman is busy, using her long fingernails to scratch more numbers into an empty space. A name also constantly appears amid the equation. Icarus. I turn around to try and understand more about my new surroundings. The small room I'd just been resting in seemingly has disappeared. Then the woman turns to me, her eyes sparkling with questions and a hint of badness. Who is that? I ask, pointing to the name that she's transcribed a thousand times. This place. Built for it. To be created, she answers. I get closer to her, trying to see if she has a numeral on her arm or a monitor, but she has neither. You're not a prisoner. We're all prisoners now, son, she tells me. So then you were in charge. Tell me more. Tell me more what we can do to escape, I demanded. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. We're trapped here forever. It's all for nothing, she says as she goes back to scrawling on the walls. I clench my fists in frustration. Listen, the old hag. I won't die down here because of you. She doesn't seem to understand why I'm angry and pushes me back with more strength than I expected. If you want to see the truth, you find the beginning, she tells me. I do my best to draw in my breath and calm down. She's starting to make sense, and I don't want to lose this chance to have a conversation. Clearly, she knows more about this place than I, and I need to find out why. She leads me down one of the nearby corridors, and I follow like an obedient and loyal dog. The walls are covered with her scrawling, some of which look like it had been jabbed away at so much that I can't tell where she had begun or ended. How long have you been here? Here? There? It really doesn't matter anymore, she responds. I sigh and try a different approach as we reach a new room. This area is completely fresh, untouched by her mangled nails. You've been working on a mathematical theory of some kind. You said it was to create something important, I asked. She nods as she looks down at the carpet. I do, too, instinctively, and notice a bloody stained ring that was large enough for several grown men. There used to be many of us. Now we are a few. We are all part of it, all designed to die, she mumbles. What did you create, I asked. Before I can get a straight answer, I hear a powerful roar, and the hair on the back of my neck stands up. It's larger than anything I could imagine. I grab the woman to flee, but she plants her feet down and remains as still as a tree. We cannot run. It'll be pointless. 
Your death is benefiting the end game. A zero sum must be met. It's the only solution that can provide salvation, she whispers. As she finishes her words, I hear those strange voices again amid the walls. Are those the lost souls of others that have died to the mad whims of this experiment? The noise of the monster grows closer. I'm running out of time. I can't just sit here and die. That won't solve anything. There must be another way, I tell her. She's frozen, paralyzed in fear by what's about to come. How many times has she seen this play out? Is that why she feels so hopeless? Is this why she feels our destruction is inevitable? But still, I wonder if all of these people had died. Why had the maze spared her? What secrets does she hold? I need you to tell me more. I can help you, I plead. But she doesn't respond. She doesn't even blink. Just as I'm about to grab her by the shoulders and shake her like a doll, I feel myself being lifted up in the air. I look down and see my body is being nearly crushed by a giant hand. It's covered in strange brown mold and warts. Then I turn and I scream. It has the face of a bull split open with the mouth of a shark. Its body is exposed and reveals a stuffed gullet full of other corpses, all of which are writhing and struggling to break free, and it's drawing me close to the whirling dagger-like blades that are inside its splintered mouth. It begins to force my body into its grinding teeth as I scream for help from the woman. She's at least ten feet below me as I feel it snap and break my legs. The pain's excruciating, and yet I cannot pass out. All I can do is beg for this monster to stop. And she's smiling. Then my head gets bent and snapped as the crushing jaw of the beast rips into my neck and darkness covers me. I'm inside its throat, my body stretching and contorting into ways I didn't even think were possible. I should be dead. That darkness feels like death, but it isn't. I'm somewhere between life and death. Pain is there for what feels like hours, pain and suffering. It lingers as I find myself meshing with others in a net of sinew and bone. They scream and claw at what's left of my battered body. I try to fight it off, but I feel more like a cog in a machine, a meaningless gear that would obey its master. Finally, the voices return, this time louder than ever. They're screaming the endless numbers into my ears. And then, it's like everything is gone. And I hear the numbers in my head and all around. They're the only thing that seemed to survive my transition into the afterlife. Or toward whatever hell's next for me. The numbers are going backward this time. And I feel my body being forced back into a single cohesive form. It feels like I'm flying up. My bones heal and push back together my neck snapping back, and then the pain is extracted like poison being sucked out of an open wound. I'm nothing, and I feel everything all at once. And then I have a memory of a time before I'm here. I can't make sense of everything, but I see faces that feel familiar, 
like a dream where you know the memories are trying to push together to make a picture, but it's still just out of sight. But I see dozens of people. We're standing near a door. It connects to a white space. We're talking and explaining the numbers, but I can't hear what we're saying. It feels like we're on the cusp of discovery. And then chaos comes and rips us to shreds. The people melted into the floor, and I'm sucked into the white nothing. Could that have been what happened right before my arrival here? How long ago was that? Suddenly I am in an open room again, much like the first one I've been in. And as I look down at my leg, I see that the monitor on my ankle is active still, but the numeral on my arm has changed. It now reads 16. Did that mean I died and was brought back again? Had I died that many times, my memories were being stripped away piece by piece, and so I was destroyed and forced to live and survive? I see to my left that there's a backpack now, and inside it are small tools, including a knife. I considered plunging it into my chest to end this agony, but I fear I'd be resurrected again with less to work with, so instead I use it to work on my ankle monitor. I wonder how it had gotten there or if it had been there all along. The maze seems to be alive, taunting me to keep pushing forward in my efforts to learn. Knowledge feels meaningless, though. Only survival matters. The other tools feel useless in this maze, but I decide to go through them anyway. I see sketch pads and journals and small bits of food. Although I realize, despite how much time has passed, I have never felt hunger. Maybe I've been dead all along. Is this purgatory? It certainly could be hell, I think, as I work on the ankle monitor with the knife. It's almost completely off. My skin is bloody and I'm dizzy from the experience. I feel so faint and I think I should move on as soon as the monitor is gone. Move and find a place to hide before any new monsters are born. I'll leave the weapon here case another unfortunate soul drops into this cage, and hope that I don't bleed out in the maze as I wander blindly. Hope is for escape, and that's all I've got left to cling to, but it may slip away soon. I may slip away as well. Goodbye. Hopefully not forever. End recording. File under Dedalus test subject number 14 and 16. Continue the process of creating new mutations. Begin plans for the next mission by the end of the month. Mission statement adjustment. To expand parameters of dimensional gateways to explore further details of the new dimension and determine the flow of time within. And to make contact with life forms within. Night Racing is back at Richmond Raceway. This spring, top NASCAR drivers like Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Bubba Wallace, Ross Chastain, and Virginia's own Denny Hamlin will battle under the bright lights. And this historic track also offers a rocking infield experience with unparalleled access to your favorite drivers and one of the best tailgate scenes around. For a weekend of friends, family, and amazing short track action, head to Richmond Raceway, March 29th through 31st. Get tickets now at richmondraceway.com. 
I hope you enjoyed The Icarus Equation by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed that tale and will love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. Author extraordinaire of the weird and the wondrous. You can find his stories on Amazon or from Colorblindness on Reddit. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Jerry, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Reliving a maze-like creation over and over again, hoping for a way out, surrounded by screams of monstrosities seeking to torment the living. I think there's a metaphor there about working in a cubicle, but maybe I'm just digging too deeply. But while we may be searching for answers, perhaps we can turn to some others who may be able to shed some light on a similar situation. Surely a world of twists, turns, and strange creatures can make more sense when a government group goes into... No, I'm guessing you don't believe me, do you? Well, perhaps you just need to see it for yourself, through the eyes of a luckless soldier who isn't quite sure about what he's going to see. Without further ado... I present to you Operation Daedalus. The following recordings are part of the Daedalus operation, a top-secret experiment taking place in Redacted, authorized by Redacted. Only authorized members may listen to these files. Zero, four hundred hours. We've arrived at the testing site. The others seem pretty upbeat, but I don't share their feelings. This is not my first choice, or hardly even my last one, if I'm being honest. I was assigned here because I had issues with authority, knocked to the bottom of the totem pole, and given the most grueling tasks in the hopes that I will eventually resign or wind up killing myself. This assignment, my former commanding officer told me, was where good men went to die. Don't be deceived into thinking you're ready for what's happening here. You aren't, and you will never be. I took those words to heart as I passed through the triple layer of security and took a moment to calm my heart with a quick smoke. Not the best of habits, I know, but I had also been told that anything outside the quarantine zone was not going to be allowed in. All of my personal effects, the memories of my time serving in the military, and even the picture of my girlfriend would be left behind. Someone told me that it wasn't too late for me to run and hide. That was my new boss, a nerfed merc named Roland Matthias, who was either East European or Mediterranean. But he looked like he was the type that meant business and had probably seen twice as many battles as me. He was counting inventory as his soldiers set up a base camp and a senior communications officer was explaining how we'd be able to transmit anything from the other side once we went through. So this is for real? 
I asked, recalling the bizarre way the mission had been described when I had been told I was headed to this godforsaken place. The file was thin, but claimed that the building we were now entering had experienced an incident relating to an experiment only about five months ago. Since that time, four teams had attempted to discern what had happened, and none had returned successfully. According to the last transmission, there were large fluctuations in radio waves and electromagnetism. It was a wall of noise, a glitch in the very fabric in our reality. The squad had come to call this zone a liminal gateway, as the only footage we'd obtained from the other side showed drab corridors that went on forever, fluorescent lights that hardly provided any illumination at all, and a sense of emptiness that filled any who watched the media with a sense of dread. When I first saw the report, I had assumed it was some sort of sick joke or confusion about the mission statement. But now, as we prepared to barge into the abandoned building, acting as though it were a battle zone, I realized this was more dangerous than anyone had imagined. They told me to get my suit on and be ready to move out in an hour. I took the time to call my girlfriend. She didn't even know about my reassignment, and I wasn't entirely sure how to explain it. Thankfully, I only got her voicemail, so I made it quick. Hey, it's me. I'm in the field again, just like you wanted. I'm about to head out, but I wanted to make sure you were doing okay. I know we haven't had much chance to talk, but I think I'd like to change that. Once this is over, maybe I can just come home. Hell, I wish I could now. Wish I could run into your arms. The message beeped, and I cursed to myself, realizing I didn't have enough time to say all the things I wanted to say. I've made so many mistakes to wind up here. My superiors likely wanted me to enter this building and never return. I suited up and took a deep breath. It was time to prove them wrong. Zero five hundred hours. I told myself as Matthias finished getting the others ready that I would do my best to familiarize myself with the names of my fellow comrades. We were but a skeleton crew meant to only investigate as much as possible and report back to HQ. But it was soon very clear I wasn't the only one here who had been sent to be forgotten. Vincent Carter, the team's physician, said that he'd been given the assignment after a botched surgery in Boston. Mr. Lang said that there were two sisters that needed my assistance, and I was on holiday near Evergrove anyway. I tried to save them, but honestly, he'd called me too late. They didn't like that, and given the fact I had alcohol in my breath, well, I don't have to tell you what happened next. He told me, gesturing aimlessly to the entrance of the abandoned building. I was focusing on the darkness and thinking back to the footage I'd seen, asking aloud to Commander Roland, where does the power source come from? Apparently, it was one of many questions that we needed to answer. Weatherby, an analyst that seemed close to Roland, was helping to set up a tethering system. All of us would be interconnected to one another via simple pulleys and ropes, as though we were planning a spelunking expedition. It's easy to get lost in there. Make sure you don't lose sight of one another. Weatherby advised all of us. An older soldier that looked like he should be already past retirement 
Barker complained as the analyst finished the hooks on the rope. Give me a gruff look. I immediately noticed he had a long scar running along the left side of his face, along with a glass orb where his eye had once been. The older man asked if I had something to bother him with. Commander Matthias told us to send out any messages to family or friends in the event we don't return. I don't see you doing that. I commented as we walked past the darkness. Nobody out here left for me. Only the shadows are my comfort now, he said, spitting on the ground. Surely there must be someone. He turned and jabbed a finger in my chest, angry that I was still pressing the issue. I said no one. Leave it at that. I belong here, the old man growled. I stood in place for a moment, confused by his words, as Vincent explained that Marsh was the only one that volunteered. He didn't know why. There were rumors, of course, but nothing solid. I shook off the unease and nodded, activating the light on my helmet and followed the others inside. Matthias was nearing the east wall, setting up small rectangular boxes on the edge of the concrete barrier, and then Weatherby was going to each one and checking to make sure everything was secure. Roland told us to cover our ears. Barry had time to listen as the strange resonating noise filled the empty building. Then I noticed, as the noise got louder, that the wall itself seemed to shimmer the way a body of water would, rippling and vibrating frantically as our commander gave us the go-ahead. I hesitated, still unsure about any of this, but it wasn't like I had a choice. The others were already barreling toward the wall as if it wasn't there, and the rope would tug me forward anyway. I closed my eyes and ran as well, the shimmering wall looming ahead. I screamed as I thought I would collide with it. Then I did hit it, and all around me reality seemed to glitch. Walls shifted and jolted, in and out of existence, hardly there, and as firm as bricks all at once. And then I fell to the ground in front of me. The shag carpet, the kind you might see in a hotel hallway. And as I opened my eyes, I saw that there was no need for night vision anymore. The dim, fluorescent lights revealed the long, widening corridors beyond. Immediately, my eyes darted about to find uh, the others as I looked down at the rope. I was stretching forward down the hall, but I couldn't see much farther than perhaps 20 feet until it fell in complete darkness. Then I swiveled about, expecting to see Carter, entering from the real world into the strange from beyond the fake wall. Instead, I saw the exact same endless corridors, and the rope that was tied to my body was connected to him, and stretching on in that direction as well for twenty feet until the darkness covered it up. Suddenly, I felt very unsure of which way I had arrived or which way I should be going. The walls and ceilings all looked the same bland colors. There were no markings or anything to tell me which direction my companions had gone. So I tried to shout, my voice sounding hollow as it echoed down the hallway. There was no answer. I walked to the nearest wall and took out a Swiss army knife from my pocket. I wrote an X on the wall to tell me where I was at. Then I turned to the left tugged at the rope, calling to Carter and the others again. When silence answered back, I started to pull at the rope and use it as a guide, like Matthias had intended. One step at a time in this strange dimension, 
said. Zero seven hundred hours. I don't really know for sure how much time has passed since I arrived, but it certainly seems and feels like at least a few hours now because I'm hungry. I've been following the rope, calling to my fellow soldiers every hundred feet, and wondering if I'll be alone forever as I wander these empty liminal spaces. I tell myself not to give up, but that's very hard when it feels like the odds are against me. I have somehow been going in circles, as I found the X that I marked on the wall at least twenty-two times. But it doesn't feel like I've turned around. The rope continues to stretch on infinitely. I decide to take a break and eat the first part of my rations, thinking perhaps if I stay out, someone would find me. I'm partially correct, but it was not someone. It was something. Zero eight thirty hours. I heard something in the distance, a low grumbling noise that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I knew it couldn't be any animal I was familiar with. It reminded me of an old video cassette recording, warped and beyond understanding, shrieking and scrambled. It was somewhere in front of me. The lights above my head flickered for a moment as the noise got louder, and I stood up, keeping my hand on my weapon and peering down the next endless corridor, where the rope stretched to. I saw something in the shadows. It was distorted and scrawny and warped all at the same time, and it had at least five appendages. A twisted neck, a head that looked larger than its body, a mouth on its abdomen and claws where its eyes should have been. It moved the way that a scorpion would, its long, messy pinchers stabbing into the ground as it crawled first on the floor and then to the walls and ceiling. Every time it made a noise... The entire corridor resonated with a vibrating ring of energy, and it was hurrying toward me. Immediately, I opened fire on the creature, a string of bullets flying from my weapon toward its open stomach. As it got hit, the fleshy tendrils of the legs and flailing arms widened and shook madly, absorbing each blow as if it were just striking at the air. And it was growing larger, too, until the abscess on its head was too bulky to even hold its own weight, and it tumbled into the room alongside me. I panicked and cut the rope, running back the way I'd come to the right and away from the paths I'd been following. The halls kept stretching on and on as I weaved and hid, trying to make a distance between myself and the monster. The screams vibrated and changed from being almost on top of me to being as far away as I kept moving left and right down the corridors, wondering if I was even getting farther away or not. It was difficult to be sure that there was any progress being made. Then, I turned a corner and nearly ran straight into one of the others. Vincent, his eyes wide with fear, as he grabbed my shoulders and clasped his hand over my mouth, next to prevent any sounds from being heard. We both hunkered down next to a wall as we heard the creature scream and thrash somewhere in a different corner, both of us ready to run if necessary. Once the noises died down, I let out an invisible sigh of relief and looked down at the rope. He had also untethered, meaning the chances of us being able to meet with the others was even less likely now. He asked if I'd seen anyone else. 
I shook my head no. And he pointed to the right. Come. Something you need to see, he said. Ten twenty hours. I'm not entirely sure if the measurement of time means much anymore, but I've been trying my best to keep track of our journey here. Carter seemed to know where he was going, following scratches in the wall to the east, as he kept his weapon steady. We kept moving. Every so often we'd freeze, hide and listen to the strange monster as it shambled past us, but it never would get close. It made me wonder if perhaps the creature itself was also lost here, the same as us. Soon I was beginning to wonder if these markings were ever going to lead anywhere, when I saw what looked like a door, and I nearly laughed in astonishment. Running toward it, I unlatched the handle and found myself, staring at what resembled a fire escape of some kind, with stairs that seemed to go on infinitely forever above and below us. Carter reached into his pack and took out a small, empty water bottle, tossing it to the stairwell below. We didn't hear it hit bottom, only seeing it vanish in the bottomless pit. I was about to go exploring this passage when that thing started to hunt me, Carter explained. I wondered how far it went as I checked for rations. We had a decent amount of food, but that didn't count for water supply. We need to find the others soon, I told him. Carter didn't respond, instead using the weapon on his left shoulder to aim toward the darkness to try and judge how far down we'd be going. Carter shot a random bullet into the pit, wondering if it went all the way to hell. We watched as it flew up and out of sight, and I shook my head as we climbed down. I'd say we're already there. Twelve hundred hours. We stopped for a break, and I offered what little water I had left to share with Carter as we slid down and stretched my legs. The stairs were endless, just like the corridor we came from, and I was beginning to get the feeling we might never leave. It made my throat feel dry and my legs tired, and I was numb to the reality that I'd likely die here just as intended. He said that Marsh would know what to do, and then began to explain why the old man had volunteered. Carter laughed and tossed his empty food can into the pit. He claimed he was searching for something, like he'd been here before. It didn't make sense, but he definitely seemed to know what he was doing. She had been the commanding officer instead of Matthias. There must be some rhyme and reason to this labyrinth. I was about to reply when I heard something and looked up above. It sounded like a scream. A second later, a body fell right past me, and I fumbled back against the wall. A moment later, we heard a loud thud. Getting to our feet, we ran down about five more floors of stairs. To see that the analyst that had been hired to keep us alive was now the first victim of this maze, or the first we knew about. I looked about and above us in the infinite stairwell. Do you think it was that thing? Is it following us? I asked. Carter pointed his weapon toward the corridor to the left. This one was narrow and cramped, leading to a second door that had marked on it a word that looked like it was Latin or something. Vincent whispered that it was called Thesis as he opened the door and we stepped into what looked like a control room of some kind. There were monitors everywhere, at least a hundred of them, 
perhaps more, viewing all of the different corridors and corners and floors of this interdimensional maze. And on one near the center, I saw another impossible monstrosity. This one had to be at least 20 feet tall, judging from the angle of the camera, and was chained down on all sides, so it was difficult to be sure how large it was at its full height. It looked like a mad science experiment gone wrong, with the flesh twisted and peeled back all over its body, a mesh between a beast of the field and its lower torso. Its head was shaped like that of a bull with two bony cracked horns, curving toward the lighting fixtures as its cold, dead hazel eyes peered toward the camera. It was looking toward us as if aware of its captivity, thinking of its escape. This is why this place was built. Benson told me his voice hardly a whisper as we checked the other cameras. There were more creatures that I couldn't describe properly on other floors, roaming freely and hunting for food. Or perhaps just hunting to kill, it occurred to me. In these endless corridors, it was likely that nothing would be available for resources, so the only thing keeping these beasts going was sheer rage. Perhaps a means of energy like the lights, I thought as I looked away from the monitors. I thought that Captain Rowland told us this place was from another reality, a step into an alien world. Why does all of this look like we're the ones that made it? I asked, gesturing randomly toward the equipment. This is a containment facility, a voice said from the right side of the control room. It was the old man, Marsh. He was coming in, dragging the corpse of Weatherby alongside him. As I have tried to explain to the others so many times, these are wild genetic creations that have no idea what they are or where they belong in the circle of life. This constant agony of nothingness that combines them here will only feed their anger and make them harder to control, he said, as he shut down the systems one by one. I don't understand why our organization is doing this, I said. Marsh laughed. He told me I knew already. Weaponizing these dimensional creatures and modifying them to be our slaves would change the face of warfare forever. They created this liminal space, he went on. It was meant only for one monster, that horrid minotaur I saw chained in the core. But the experiments have spread like cancer, and it's gotten out of control. They'll never admit it. These things can't be contained here forever. The maze is going to eventually implode. I've seen what it can do firsthand. He passed me a picture of a younger woman, who I guessed was his daughter, and I complimented him, saying, I take it that she was brought here, and that's why you come? They've turned this person into a sacrificial pit, he said. It's the only way to keep these preachers satisfied. They wander and moan and consume everything in the maze, and people like us, people cast aside like her, we're the bait, consumed by their greed. And then, as a result, the maze grows. My hands began to tremble as I passed the picture back to him, realizing what he was implying. I was told before I came here I was sent here to die. I thought that was just a wild exaggeration. 
but it was really a mission statement. They can't let these things loose in the real world, I whispered. And they can't kill them. Maintaining the maze and discovering what we can about them is the safest choice. But it comes with a cost. Feeding these beasts takes a lot of lives. More and more are losing theirs for what is ultimately a forgotten cause, I realized. Vincent claimed it would never be enough. Listen to yourself, I said. We can't just go home, either. We don't even know how. We need to find a way to kill these things. Marsh, you said the prison would collapse. Can we do that and eliminate the threats inside? I asked the old man. He rubbed his beard thoughtfully as we marched out of the control room and he nodded, saying, It'll take a little bit of time to get in position. There's a way. I've been there before. I won't be doing anything until I find my daughter. I nodded, checking what little equipment we had left. We should move together from now on, I said. Sixteen hundred hours. I don't think I should log the time anymore, as it's become a constant threat to my sanity. I know we've been here longer than I'm recording, yet the markers from my journal keep me tethered to what I once understood as reality. The endless blank hallways have stretched out on and on as Vincent and Marsh and I keep searching for the last survivor of our group, our commanding officer, along with the lost daughter that I doubt is even alive. I say that because of the creatures we've seen here in this hellhole, and Marsh has become more and more lost as time goes on. His earlier ramblings about knowing a way to stop these monsters seems like a faint memory now as I pull Carter to the side and mutter, How long are we going to let this old man keep us wandering? We have no idea what part of this dimensional prison we're in. Carter's eyes were bloodshot and his lips were dry, another reminder that we were out of time. We had no resources left, and our energy was scarce at best. Maybe we can find a way back to that command center, find an exit, he asked, coming to terms with the fact that our search for Roland seemed useless. Before I could speak, I heard Marsh holler for us. It was a cry of distress. Despite our misgivings about the man, we dashed to where he was, in another large empty chamber, and as soon as I saw what made him scream, I felt numb. Roland, or what was left of him, was on display in the center of the room. His body was spliced apart every which way you could imagine, naked and dripping blood as it was held together but what looked like long black chains. Suddenly I realized where we were. This was the center of the maze where earlier we'd seen the strange bull-like beast, the Minotaur, as Marsh called him. But his story was falling apart. He claimed this was another mad experiment that had failed, and that was what we had seen. Yet now we were viewing it for ourselves, and all I saw was a tortured, broken man. And yet his organs still seemed to have life in them, as a strange energy pulsed amid the chains. We are the experiment, fed into the machine to face these beasts, and then eventually becoming them, I realized. I heard shrieks coming from the nearby corridors, and realized that the beasts we had been chased by earlier were likely coming here soon to harvest what was left of Roland. 
Marsh fell to his knees, defeated and frustrated, as he screamed and punched the blood-soaked floor. I knew he was thinking of the daughter he sacrificed everything for. Then I turned to Vincent, who was cocking his gun and aiming it at his own mouth, tears streaming down his face. This isn't how I wanted to end. I'd rather be dead than used for this freak show. He whispered with a raspy voice. The scream for him to stop, but it was too late. The echoes of the bullet smashing through his skull alerted the creatures to our location, and I tugged at Marge, urging him to stand. Go without me. My children want me here. He insisted as he pushed me away. I didn't have time to argue as the different shambling beasts were already in the core, so I ran to the left and didn't look back. Time unknown. How long has it been since then? And I've somehow survived? Perhaps it's been a few days or a few months. I wait for orders to arrive as I wander this place. Forest to feed off the men that are left behind. And use their carcasses as shelter and security. The creatures are beginning to treat me as part of the maze and giving me my own territory. A back room of sorts that I can wander and scribble on the walls whenever I wish. This is where I begun to write warnings in my own experience of my time here. I use the long fingernails and rudimentary bones I have left from our grotesque meals, to which I can remind myself of how I once was human, too. I think I walk like a man, but I can no longer claim to understand the world beyond the maze. Here, thanks to the endless cycles of time, I can become a god this is likely what the experiment was meant for, anyway. And although the creatures I've seen are bizarre, I've also seen how beautiful they can be. How can something so amazing and full of life be a nightmare? I returned to the command center and saw Marsh on the cameras not long ago, wandering a different part of the maze. His skin is all gone now, and he walks like a shadow with a limp. He continues to search for something that's long gone. Or perhaps it might not even be here. Or, as I have begun to lose track of time, I've understood that there is no rhyme or reason to the flow of events here. We are simply here. The present is always, and the past is always, and the future is always. I've found a place where Marsh claimed this place could open to the rest of the world. I walk by it often to see who's there. Sometimes I think of escape, but I doubt the world will recognize me for what I am now. The other day I saw a woman, a girl, she looks familiar, distant memory from a life I could have had. I killed her instantly, and used her bone marrow to restore my own energy. Her eyes were dead and accusing, but I think she would agree it was better for her to end it here on the threshold than become a part of the labyrinth. I think she might have connected to me, or perhaps to the old man. He's part of the maze now, his body meshing with the wall and being absorbed. The same will happen to me. I don't know if I'll return to the world beyond, although the way is open to me. I don't think anything is there for me waiting. I don't think I belong there as I've lost my own sanity. I'll wander these corridors, stripped of any memory of what was once human and be the maze itself. 
Eventually I'll die. And my body absorbed in the cycle will repeat. Until one day our world meets with one beyond these walls. End recording. File under Daedalus Test Subject Number 13. Mission considered a success minus the casualty of one Lucha Marsh. Continue process of creating new mutations. Plans begin for the next mission by end of month. Mission statement. To expand parameters of dimensional gateways to explore further details of the new dimension and determine the flow of time within. I hope you've enjoyed Operation Day Dallas by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. Find his most recent work under the name of Colorblindness on Reddit or catch one of his numerous stories collected on Amazon. As a reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented author stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. Be sure to let him know you heard about him here on this program and that Otis sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, I'm pretty sure he would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012. All of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jerry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jerry. Until next week, stay spooky. Get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, 
and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha 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 ha!